Hello and welcome to the world famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I'm traffic anchor as well as the transportation reporter for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. If you would like to be a part of the show, you could always give me a call on the listener hotline, 832. Oh, I guess you would need a uh, first three digits. Uh, 303-832-0217. Or you can just go to the description of this podcast and you could find uh, the number and all the other contact links uh, right there. All right, I'm really looking forward to speaking to my guest today. Uh, see, um, as, as Americans... We love to road trip, right? Uh, our road trips are usually just maybe across one state, maybe across several states, rarely across the country, like running down uh, Route 66. But it happens. And and what would do you think would be the ultimate road trip? What about a road trip around the world? Stuart Clark and his wife, Janelle, they've been traveling, get this, around the world for the past 10 years on their motorcycles, and they've been doing it with their rescue dogs. Their trip is winding down now, but not before they made a stop here in Colorado. So I wanted to catch up with them and talk about their adventures. Stuart and Janelle, thanks for being here on the world famous Driving You Crazy podcast. Thanks very much for having us. Yeah, thanks, Jason. So it's no secret listening to you folks talk. Uh, you guys are from uh, down under, from Australia. Tell me about how you two met. We met through football or soccer, as you call it. <laughs> Um, yeah, we played uh, we played soccer together in uh, a local club, and um, it was a, a passion that we both shared. So we got to know each other, and um, and yeah, we we were at uni at the time as well. So, um, so yeah, that's how we met, and we travel was some a passion that we both shared, and we we talked about right from the start, right from our first date. Travel really was something that really drew it, um, us to each other, and um, and that sense of adventure that we both have, and and wanting to go out and explore the world really, um, uh, really resonated with both of us, and um, and so we, yeah, we hit it off straight away. As I understand it, um, you, Stuart, were an avid rider of motorcycles. So I, I used to ride motorcycles before it became too dangerous around Colorado to uh, ride them because the the people in, in their cars are too are, are too crazy, not paying attention. But I, I, and I, there's no way I could, could have convinced my wife to get on a motorcycle with me. How did you convince Janelle to get her own motorcycle and, and make this road trip with you? I, it, really, it was a practical decision to start with. Janelle was traveling to uni, was taking her two, two hours a day to get to, um, get to her classes. And if you, if you did it on a motorbike, it was a 20-minute trip. So it was, just, it was just the connection that made it really slowly really slow so um so i'd been riding a bike and my brother actually lent us a bike while um while he was overseas and i said to Janelle, get your license and you can ride his bike and um you get to, you get to uni in no time so she started riding and she loved it she actually got more into biking than i did she was the one that was out there organizing rides with other other bikers and um yeah and uh, for me really it was more of just of just transport, but to Janelle, it became more of a lifestyle. So it was, um, yeah. So in the end, really, it was her that got me into the idea of, of motorbiking as a lifestyle. And, and Janelle, what was it like for you the first time you actually rode the motorcycle? I, I'm sure there was some nervousness and some exhilaration all at the same time. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It, um, it is, it is nerve wracking the first time you get on, uh, and 
actually every time I ride a different bike, uh, I, I get the same level of nerve, um, but it, it's so much fun. And if you're wearing the right gear and, uh, and you're careful on the road, it can be very safe. What kind of motorcycles do you have right now? Are they specially made, specially equipped? Uh, not particularly. We bought um, we bought secondhand bikes. Uh, they're the BMW. Oh, well, I have the F six fifty GS uh, two thousand and six, and Stu rides a two thousand and twelve G six fifty GS. They're almost identical bikes. Um, we did fit them out for our our trip around the world, so we put on panniers, long range tanks. Uh, we upgraded the suspension. Um, so little things like that, but the the bike is more or less uh, as it comes. But you also had to adjust it a little bit because, as any pet owner knows, you you don't want to leave your furry friend behind or for too long when you go away. So is that why you decided to travel with your dog Skyla and uh, outfit your your motorcycles to accommodate the dog? Yeah, that's exactly it. We um, it was a bit of a negotiation. I wanted to go traveling for like a long time, um, at least kind of 18 months. And Janelle was happy to do a six month. That was an extended trip for her. Um, and it was all because she, we had a dog back in Australia and she couldn't bear the thought of leaving her, leaving Skylar, was our dog in Australia, couldn't bear leaving Skylar for, for any more than six months. Um, even that was really a stretch. So um, to, yeah, a bit of a negotiation if I wanted to, to extend this trip out to 18 months or two years or now ended up being 10 years. But um, I had to come up with a way that we could take the dog, we could take Skylar with us. So we, I mean, we're both engineers, so we were able to come up with a design pretty um, pretty easily and, and got something knocked up from, at a local fabricator. And, um, yeah, and we had our, our, what we call the pillion pooch dog carrier sitting on the back of the bike behind us and, um and plenty of room for Skylar to, to move around. She's a twenty-three or like a fifty-five-pound pit bull, so she was quite a quite a large dog. Yeah. So getting something for her to be on the back of the bike was was a little bit of a challenge. But um, but yeah, we we came up with what we think really was the perfect solution. My guest is Stuart and Janelle Clark uh, talking about their 10-year round-the-world road trip on motorcycles. It, it, you know, I think it's a, a dream of many to see the world, right? But but they ultimately just don't do it, or maybe they see little bits and pieces of it, mainly because of time and family. And, and, and more, most importantly, I think the cost of any trip can be astronomical, especially for a lot of people who are living now paycheck to paycheck. And, and, and if you want to go on a long trip, then, then you have to figure out how you're really going to finance it. So before you left for your trip, before you left Australia, what were those discussions like about how to finance your trip and and make money, earn money, have money with you as you were gallivanting around the world? Uh, so, well, uh, we decided pretty much after we got married that we wanted to start saving for the trip. And, and that meant we really, we really cut back on spending and we really concentrated on putting our money away. Most of our friends were saving for... Um, for a house, to get a house, we decided not to do that because we wanted to travel. So uh, that was kind of the first decision, um, to start putting as much money away as possible and doing really cheap holidays while we're driving around Australia with Skylar. Um, we kind of plucked a number 
out of the air for a budget uh, budget per day, which we thought would cover, um, you know, accommodation, meals, uh, maintenance on the bike, um, and transport between continents. And we thought that the trip would be two years. In reality, when we started traveling, um, Mexico, we, we flew into the US and then Mexico was the first country we went into. We were well underspending um, according to the budget we had. You know, we could get hotels for, oh, you know, nothing fancy, but, you know, $10 a night sometimes and street food was good, it was cheap. Um, and we realized quickly that our money could go a lot further. And that more or less funded uh, the entire trip, what we saved in Australia. What was that per day figure that you had originally budgeted? We budgeted on about $100 a day. Yeah, that's what we had. Yeah, but that seems reasonable. It seems reasonable for two people and a pet to, and fuel and maintenance, like you said, uh, because you never know how much maintenance is going to be in the future. So it's not like you're spending it every single day, but you need to save some for, uh, you know, that rainy day when a tire blows out. Yeah. And we, we figured that um, we wanted to enjoy the trip. We didn't want to have to work along the way. Some people write articles. They do. Um, they have YouTube channels and they can generate funds. We just really wanted to concentrate on the traveling and we decided that we would uh, we would not be lavish. We'd be careful with our money. But when we reached a point, if we reached a point where, you know, the money was nearly gone, then that would be the end of our trip and we would go home. Nice. My guests, Stuart and Janelle Clark, were talking about their 10-year round-the-world trip on their motorcycles with their uh, pets, including their rescue dogs that we'll talk more about in just a little bit. You, As, as you said, you, you flew to the United States first. Uh, as I understand it, you flew to Dallas, and then you went down to Mexico. Why did you fly to Dallas, and then why didn't you tour the U.S. and go down to Mexico uh, first? Well, we wanted to start the trip somewhere that was going to be easy for us, somewhere where it was English-speaking, where we could find bikes easily to purchase, and where the purchasing process was going to be straightforward for us. So really, that had to be an English-speaking country, and one that had a direct flight was definitely a benefit because we really didn't want to put Skyler through uh, any any connecting flights. We were putting her into the Cape General Payment. We wanted, once she landed, to get her out, and, and that would be it for at least um, for the... For that, for that leg of the flight. Um, so, yeah, so the USA just made a lot of sense. And Dallas, we, we looked at LA or Dallas. Um, we just figured that Dallas was probably closer to where we wanted to be. We wanted to get down into uh, Mexico and head down to Central America pretty quickly. Uh, why we didn't do the US to start with, we, um, we, we'd always planned to come back to the US at some point. So it was really just, um, yeah, I, it did make more sense to come back. We, we knew that going back to Australia, we'd have to go through uh, certain countries and um, just to sort out the paperwork for returning to Australia. It's quite, quite a, compli a complicated process to get to Australia. So we knew we'd have to come back to a country, and the US was one of those approved countries. So we figured as we're coming back anyway, we'll do all the touring at that point. And when you get down into Mexico, it, it's its own 
culture. It's its own country, obviously, a lot different than the United States, a lot different than Australia. And then as you moved your way through Central America southward, I'm sure that you started to absorb some of the different cultures. Talk about a little bit about what it was like starting in Mexico and then visiting some of the other countries there in Central America as you head south. Yeah, for us, it really was, um, I mean, it's definitely a, a culture shock going into to Mexico and, and, um, and Central America. It is very different to, to Australia, for sure. But we had, I mean, we experienced uh, travel a little bit beforehand. We'd been to Africa, we'd been through Southeast Asia a little bit. So the, the culture shock wasn't huge for us. Um, but, uh, and, and really... South America or Latin America is is a very, very easy to travel compared to other places. Um, getting really the challenges for us really started when we hit Africa, the Middle East, um, Central Asia. They're vastly different culturally to um, to South America. Uh, South America I means still uh, it's it, at least it's just just one language really to learn. I mean, there's you learn Spanish and you can get by um, all through Latin America. I mean. You've got Portuguese in Brazil, but a lot of them will be able to understand your Spanish if you know that. Um, yeah, and it's just, it's so close to the US. There's a lot of uh, American expats throughout Latin America that you're running into. So really that part of the trip, it was, I mean, looking back on it and, and doing what we've done now, it, that was really a, a very easy part of the, the travels. Um, I mean, I, it probably did help that we had had a little bit of experience already with traveling. But um, but no, we the Latin America was really fun. There's so much to see. The um, all the all the ruins throughout. It's it was a real highlight. At, at the, uh, it was a real real good way to, to ease in to this this trip. Doing two years through the Americas, yeah, it was really um a really good good way to ease in. And I'd really recommend anyone, especially from the US, as it's so close. If you're looking to do a world trip, start in the Americas. It's it eases you in and it's it's really easy. It sounds like you were able to go slowly and maybe take some of the uh, not-so-well-traveled roads. I, I know that some of the roads in, in uh, Central America and South America aren't the, aren't the easiest to get around, um, and, and they're not like highways, major highways here in the United States. But it sounded like you guys were able to at least slow down and absorb the scenery and the surroundings that you were in. Yeah, I think, you know, for us, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Um, Australia is so far away, and we there are a few reasons why we decided to do a world trip rather than break it up into different sections. But um, to begin with, we, we actually had tickets to the World Cup in Brazil. So we flew into Dallas, and we had a few delays with the paperwork, which put us a little bit behind the schedule that we had. And we ended up moving quite quickly through Central America to get down to Brazil. And we found that that was quite stressful. And after the World Cup, we had a bit of a chat and decided that having any kind of deadlines like that again and uh, any any time constraints was, was not a good idea for us, particularly when you're traveling with a dog. Uh, so that's when we decided to really slow down um, and, and be flexible to go whichever way we wanted to take, to do off-road riding as well as, as field roads and um, sort of go where the, the wind blew us. <laughs> <Right>. And 
once we started doing that, we really, really settled into to traveling and really enjoying it. My guests are Janelle and Stuart Clark talking about their 10-year round-the-world road trip on their motorcycles. They, you know, there's been a long uh, talk uh, for a long time of connecting southern Panama to Colombia through that Darien Gap area. It's, it's one of the most remote and one of the most dangerous places in the world. How, how did you make it from Panama to Colombia? Uh, we took a sailboat. Um, oh, neat. I'm, yeah, I'm not sure what the situation is now, but uh, we did it in 2014. And we we arrived in Panama City and Stu had been contacting a few different operators that were doing that, that trip. And one of them came back and, and said that he had a boat leaving the very next day, told us where to go to get on the boat, um, he was happy for us to put our bikes on the deck, so our bikes were manhandled onto the boat, onto the sailboat, strapped to the railing, um, and then Stu and I, and we had Skylar at that point, we, um, we hopped on the boat. The boat was actually full of tourists, so it was kind of a package where they would sail around the sandblast islands for five days, you go snorkeling, you go over to islands and play volleyball and have fun before you do the a 36 hour uh commute over to columbia so we just joined joined in on that boat trip yeah you you mentioned skyla uh uh, at that time and and that's when your trip became challenging because you had found out that skyla had cancer and and you almost right decided to call it quits um at that point yeah her having cancer was not um i mean that wasn't going to stop us we um because we, she was actually diagnosed in australia and we um i mean we'd saved up all this money for traveling and so when she was diagnosed with cancer we learned about um the chemotherapy but also a bone marrow transplant and there had only been five other dogs in australia who had gone through that process and we thought we've got the money she's she's at our family and um and we uh, we owe it to her. We, we just thought we, we can do this, so we're going to throw everything we can at it. And it was, I think it ended up being about $22,000 for the whole process. But we just figured that's just days on the road. If we have to cut our trip down by a couple of months, then um, then so be it. At least we, uh, we, we can save her. So that's what we did. We, um, we, we put her through all that. I had to delay the trip a little bit. But she was, she'd gone into remission and she was a healthy dog when we left Australia. And then about um, about a month in, when we were in Mexico, the, the cancer returns. Um, we were able to get chemotherapy drugs on the road, which did definitely add to, to the stress of, of traveling, but, um, but it really wasn't too difficult to find. We had to do some dodgy things at times with me walking into a hospital, pending I was the um, patient, I didn't have my drugs with me, and they would, uh, they would bite me and I get get what we needed, but you know we, we worked it out. Um, but uh, but we, we always knew that if it, if she dies on the road, she's with us the whole time. So traveling to, to not go traveling and to stay at home and work and, and her be at home most of the time by herself wasn't the better solution. The better solution was to have her with us, go traveling and see as much as we can. And we ended up getting eleven months um, of traveling with her. So, and that's the 11 months that we wouldn't have had otherwise. So we, um, we certainly don't regret any of the decisions we made around, around Skylar. But when she passed away, 
that's when we, we were a little bit lost and really upset and heartbroken. And really, uh, I I wanted to go home at that point. Um, it's very, it's, I mean, it's difficult losing anyone you love, but being in a foreign country where you don't know anyone, and we're in Venezuela, which, which certainly has some problems. Um, I just, I found it really difficult, but within within a month, we had adopted Wheaty, and uh, she saved us, she saved us, she was the best thing that could have happened to us. Yeah, so you were able to pick up more friends, because you already had the motorcycle already outfitted for pets, and you were able to, uh, it sounds like, rescue some more dogs and, and give them a great travel life that they otherwise wouldn't have had. Yeah, exactly. We 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 actually after Skylar died, we thought we'll, we'll we'll travel for a little bit, maybe six months or so. Maybe we'll we'll, we'll even fly out of the Americas and in Europe we might um, pick up another dog. We've got everything, but we we needed time to heal. But um, but yeah, within a month um, we met Weedy. She'd been hit by a truck. Um, she was she's quite disabled, um, and she needed someone to adopt her that had to give her one-on-one the vet that had rescued her had a whole heap of rescue dogs as you can imagine there's so many dogs in need um she just the vet couldn't give her the one-on-one attention that she needed and she knew that weedy in particular really needed that attention so when when we came through and we had the setup and um and she knew that we were so caring to skylar she kind of insisted that we adopt weedy and uh, we couldn't say no he was such a lovely dog. So, um, yeah, then uh, before we know it, we're, we're traveling with a dog again. And it was 10 months later that we saw Shadow cross the road. He was um, crossed the road in front of me. I, I missed her, but the car behind went straight over the top of her. Uh, it was just, it was a low uh, sports car. And so she's so tiny. Any other dog would have been killed. But because she's so small, she was able to get down and under it. But something in the underside of the, the car had hit her in the head and um and her eye was bulging out that was, but that was the only damage i parked up and ran back i thought i did think she was dead initially because she was just petrified on the on the road and um, i picked her up i realized pretty quickly that she was alive and um then we we got it to a vet uh, the vet um removed the eye we asked the vet about rehoming her didn't really want to adopt the second dog but the vet said that the shelters are full of dogs. If you don't adopt her, then, then no, no one will. And she has very little chance. So the decision was made there and then that we had a second dog. Um, yeah, and then for it was ten, uh, sorry, eight years we were traveling with the four of us. And it was the end of 2021. We were in Turkey. And this time it was Janelle that had a, a dog walk out in front of her. Just this tiny puppy, four to six weeks old. Um, on a busy highway, but in a rural part of Turkey, but it, but yeah, definitely shouldn't have been too far from its mum. So Janelle stopped and picked him, picked her up, and um, we looked everywhere for for a mum. We looked, we went to a local village, or nearest nearest village, and asked around there, and no one knew anything of of her. So we took her to a vet, and again we asked about rehoming, and the vet said. Um, You'd say that the shelters are full. Again, we can't be, we contacted shelters time ourselves personally, and they said um, they said 
as a last resort, they would take her in, but um, but really they didn't want to, just because they had so many of their own. Um, and yeah, and it also turned out that she had parvovirus, which is a very deadly virus for dogs, for, for puppies, not so much for adult dogs, but for puppies, especially up to three or four months old. So um, the vet wouldn't, didn't really want to take her into the clinic because she was a risk to all his other um, patients. So, and he, he said, I'll only take her if you agree to adopt her and take her with you. So, um, so we had to agree then. Yeah. Um, we, we had three dogs, we figured it couldn't be too hard. We've been doing it with two dogs for a long time, a third dog, surely it's not going to be too difficult. Um, but really, and, and realistically, now having three dogs, it's not too bad, but having this tiny puppy that we knew nothing about puppies, we don't always only rescue adult dogs, so we're suddenly thrown in the deep end with how to deal with a puppy, a very, very demanding little puppy. Um, yeah, we always say that out of all of the travel we've done, our biggest challenge has been raising a puppy on the road. <laughs> yeah, they are they are a special breed. Until, but but the good thing about dogs is they're not a puppy forever. Uh, they, <laughs> they they quickly grow into adult as a dog. My guest is Stuart, as well as Janelle Clark. We're talking about their ten year round the world road trip that they've took taken on their motorcycle with uh, uh, four at rescue dogs, three right now. You you all, as you said, you made it to Europe. How did you get from South America to Europe? Did you take a boat? Did you fly? How'd you get all your stuff and all the dogs to Europe? So after after we traveled around Latin America for about 18 months, we ended up going back to North America. Um, we wanted to go up and um, see a bit more of the U.S. Uh, and head up into Canada for a bit. Um, but we also... We had learnt of a, an alternative way of getting between the Americas and Europe. Um, the QM2, the Queen Mary 2 cruise line, is the only cruise line in the world, I believe, that has kennels on board. And that seemed just like a really nice way to move between uh, North America and Europe and also a really fun travel experience. So we looked into that. There was a waiting list to get the dogs in a kennel on the boat for about a year. So, uh, so we 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 got on the waiting list. Um, so we had some time to kill after we were travelling around South America. So, and the boat left from New York. It sailed from New York into Southampton in the UK. So, while we were kind of waiting for our boat trip. Um, we spent a few months traveling around North America. And uh, so we, we shipped the bike uh, from LA. They went into a container. We did uh, less than container load, which means they go into a container and when that container is full, they ship it. So it takes a little bit longer, but it tends to be cheaper. And then we got ourselves up to New York with a hire car and uh, we sailed. And it's a seven-day voyage and it was really nice. Uh, definitely a much nicer way of, of moving animals. A little bit longer, <laughs> but um, but they, uh, I believe they've refurbished the kennels on board now, but it was a really fun experience. There were about 12 kennels, and you had the kennel club, so we got to know all the other passengers with dogs on board. And we landed, yeah, we landed in the UK. And uh, from there, getting down to Africa, it was very 
We took ferries. Getting around Europe, we used a few ferries. And we really didn't have to ship our bike until, again, until the end of Africa. Uh, so out of Egypt, we shipped the bike back to the UK. Again, we went back to the UK and we flew with Weedy and Shadow into Paris. Uh, we didn't fly directly into the UK because dogs have to fly as cargo. And when they fly as cargo, they're in the crate for an extra six hours. So it's a very different process to check baggage. When you fly as check baggage, the dogs go into the airport with you and you drop them off with the excess baggage air in the excess baggage area about 45 minutes to an hour before the flight. And they're waiting near the carousel where your luggage comes out at the other end. Yeah, I couldn't imagine doing, you know, having a having a dog, having any pet in in an airplane like that when and they don't know what's going on. It's it's always it's got to be nerve wracking for the pets when they're traveling in an airplane. I I couldn't imagine doing that. I think there's things you can do to to make it easier on your pet. So uh, crate training your pet so that they're not suddenly in in a box that they're not used to. All of our dogs are crate trained and they're very happy to go into a crate. Uh, we try to get the biggest ones we can for them. Um, and, uh, I mean, yeah, they, when, they go, when they go under the plane, it, it's air-conditioned, it's climate control, and, and it's dark. So I'm pretty sure our girls just sleep. You, uh, and to, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. The check luggage option, I mean, there's two options. Unless you can, unless your dog is small enough to go in the cabin with you, generally you've got two options with larger dogs: check luggage or cargo. And cargo, you are you're taking the dog to the cargo terminal before your flight, so they've got to be dropped off before you even get to the airport. And then afterwards, after you've gone through customs immigration and left the airport, then you go to the cargo terminal to pick them up. So there's there's such a much it's a much longer process, and it's just when you take them as check luggage, they come into the airport with you. It's much much better for the dog they're with you for a much longer period of time and they're out of the crate for, for a lot less so we always recommend if anyone's traveling with a dog they can take their dog check luggage rather than cargoes sometimes people don't quite understand the difference between it but there is a, a real big difference particularly for the, for the pet you were obviously talking about going down to Asia, going through Europe. You've already been through part of the United States and down through South and Central America. The, the, the differences between all these places have to be uh, enormous, or is it not? Are there more similarities to these cities and countries and people than there are differences? There are Huge differences culturally, but when you talk to people on an individual basis, they're nearly all the same all around the world. People really want to, to help you if they can or to get to know you and and talk to you. It's, um, yeah, really one thing we've learned is that the, the people around the world are, are very similar. They all have the same kind of needs and wants and, um, and, and generally... Like 99.99% of people are good people and uh, mean you absolutely no harm at all. But there's definitely uh, big differences culturally, obviously, um, and the, the landscape changes, um, the, yeah, the, the countries, the way they're run, uh, very different. Got to deal with different levels of corruption in different places, um, particularly going through Africa, police corruption is, um, is a big thing. 
um yeah it's uh it we do get surprised when we, we go to different parts of the world and we think we think we've seen it all we've done we're up to 108 countries now but still our last few countries they they were again very different uh, for different reasons to anywhere else we've been and we're, we're always we're always learning so um so you just you, you can never see it all and there's always something there's always more to see yeah but the, the similarities um the, the similarities are really reassuring so when you, you spend time with families in different countries and friends um you you realize just how much we all have in common that you know we just we want to we want to have a home uh people want to have a home they want to be able to spend time with their friends and family um families love to get together and 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 they just people just want to to help each other and and live a really happy healthy life and we saw that all over the world and it was lovely to see that in person but it's also has to be a little bit at, at, in different countries in in the world they're they're not all as open as the UK or the United States or other other countries there there are some safety concerns in places that you probably have had had to travel through, right? Yes, but I mean, we we don't really think about that. It's because I, we, well, there are there are things we do um, just to be careful. So we try not to ride at night time. Um, that's just that just makes sense when you're on the roads anyway. Trying not to be out in the dark, but. Uh, you know, we listen, we listen to, to, to local knowledge of people say, you know, don't go that way, go that way. We, we take that kind of information on board and, and why they suggest doing that. Yeah, I guess, I, so one of the other things I do, we do use as a tool is the couch surfing app, which most people use for finding accommodation. But I use it more for contacting people in parts of the world like, um, like Iraq or Yemen or Syria um, and talking to people that are on the ground there that live there and asking them what the situation is like and if and what how safe it is to cross certain sections of those countries and i and i generally ask uh send them a message out to like five different people so that i get a good range of answers and i'm not just getting don't just happen to hit someone who um who may have a maybe malicious um so uh yeah i i it's a really good tool but once we've made the decision that we are going to go somewhere, um, we we just yeah we we we've made it on 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 good information and we uh, we just try to enjoy ourselves. Like we, we went to Mexico as our first place, and people really told us that we shouldn't go to Mexico. As soon as we landed in, in Texas, we were being told you can't go to Mexico; it's so dangerous. And I mean, a lot of these the people that were telling us this information had never been to. And Mexico themselves, it's what they'd heard. So, um, so you've got to kind of filter out that a lot of that information and, and do the research itself. Well, you know, you but, and yeah. McGregor did a motorcycle trip from uh, from the southern tip of South America all the way to Los Angeles, and and during in in his uh, documentary, he was talking about, and there was talk, quite a bit of talk about how dangerous uh, it was in parts of Mexico, especially for the motorcycle riders that are going through there. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, I think. I think. I, I think that was good drama. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> You've got a lot of friends who ride down to Mexico um, every year. Uh, been down this year, and 
we've never heard of anyone having any problems. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is a lot of people that we that we've heard of that have had problems uh, in Mexico have been some way connected to something they shouldn't have been. They've either been um, involved in drugs or um, or or some or something, or or they've just been out at the wrong time. Like like traveling at night is just something that you really should avoid. Um, not being by yourself uh, and just being in, in areas that um, like uh, fully lit. I mean, there's, there's just common sense things that, that we follow that if, as long as you follow these rules, uh, I think you're, you're, you are safe. You, you can keep yourself relatively safe. Yeah, we, we went through, um, when we started traveling through Mexico, uh, local people would say, you know, that this, I, I can't remember where it was, but this particular city, you shouldn't go there. It's not very safe. So we stayed away from that. So I don't, I don't entirely understand why they made such drama in the long way up about going to Mexico. And I'm kind of sad that they did because it sent out really the wrong message about Mexico. Yeah, it was. It, that was an interesting documentary. Do, do you see, find any similarities to what those two experienced? And I know they were on, I think they were on trying to do it with electric bike, uh, motorcycles, and you weren't. But uh, besides that, were, were there similarities between how they had their trip and you were doing your trip? Um, we Because we had traveled through a lot of the countries, well, yeah, all of the countries they went through, we enjoyed uh, watching it to sort of reminisce. But apart from that, it was not at all like our journey. Um, there wasn't much we had in common because they've got they've got support vehicles, they've got a schedule, they've got um, a lot of places that they pre-organised to go. And yeah, of course, they were on the electric uh, Harley, and and so charging became a, a, a massive issue in that series. Uh, whereas we can get fuel anywhere we go. We found both, we watched the long way round and the long way down before we travelled the long way up and come out yet, and we found them like extremely inspirational. And we have watched them uh, again while we've been travelling when we needed some inspiration. So we, we, they are a great series. We really enjoy watching them. But, um, but we do need to know, well, you've got to remember that it's, um, that it's for TV. It's, yeah. it's a lot of drama it that's kind of... Um, yeah, added. Right, right. Uh, my guests are Janelle and Stuart Clark. We're talking about their 10-year round-the-world road trip that they took with their uh, rescue dogs and what it was like being out there. Uh, is Was there any country that you were concerned about going to, about driving through more than any other? And then what was your experience through there and then was it the same as what did you have the apprehension before you went and then what was it like for you after you went through that country yeah there's definitely one comes to mind last year we traveled through iraq and we didn't just a lot of people are traveling through kurdistan through the north of iraq or down maybe as far as baghdad and out um but we we wanted to get to jordan so we had to go down through, um, through Kurdistan down to Baghdad and then we had to go west across the Syrian desert and that is ISIS territory and the military uh, have got a huge presence there but they don't they don't control it uh, through the night time it's only during the day so it's like it's 450 kilometer stretch about 300 miles or so where it's really just desert there's a sealed road all the way through but it's um, but it is it's desert and it is it is a, a very dangerous territory somewhere you definitely don't want to be caught at night time so um 
we did the research. We weren't going to do it, but some bikers in Turkey convinced us that it was possible and that they'd known people that have done it, so that we should give it a go. We thought we'll enter Iraq, and if everything isn't quite um, as, uh, as it should be, if, if it seems too dangerous, we can continue down to, um, uh, to Basra and, and get into Kuwait, and uh, we'll probably get to Jordan that way, or we could get to Jordan that way. So we had a, we had a, a backup plan. But, um, but once we got into Iraq, we, we went to Baghdad and this town Ramadi just west of Baghdad is the, the last town before you hit the Syrian desert. And we stayed with a, a really lovely family there. And they, I mean, the stereotypes of uh, an, an Arabic family were just not at all. This, this family really took us in. They had, um, they allowed our dogs to be in the house to sleep in the beds, the beds with us. Um, really, really lovely family and all of the families around. I mean, they were very traditional Iraqi families, but, um, but they all, they loved when we walked the dogs, they loved coming out and, and saying hello and, um, yeah, and playing with the dogs. So it was, it, it was really, um, warming to just to see that stereotype that everyone that we, that we have of Arabic families and it's just not being present. Yeah, yeah. With dogs. So then we had this, this 300 mile stretch of desert that we had to go through. We had a friend who was a general in the police and he briefed us on what we needed to do and how we needed to, um, to proceed. He said we had to leave at six o'clock in the morning. I think we ended up probably leaving at seven or eight, but he said, you really have to be up, up and out early. The military will be, uh, will be patrolling the, the highway all through the day, but at four o'clock they finish and they go home. So if you're not, if you haven't crossed in that time, then, um, then you're in trouble. So we set off. And um, there were military presence was was amazing. They you for the whole journey you always had a line of sight to a military vehicle or an outpost or a soldier just uh, stationed on the side of the road. There was just so much military presence that we did not feel unsafe at any time. Um, and for a lot a large portion of it, we were actually escorted by with a, a Hummer vehicle um, taking us across the, the desert. So. It was, uh, yeah, it was, it, we were, we were worried about what it might be, but we always had that backup plan and we always knew that if it was, if it was too dangerous, we just turn around and, and go another way. But it, it just, it felt, we, we never felt unsafe. So much so that when we got into Jordan, we went to the sites that we wanted to see there. There's some really big sites, Petra and the Dead Sea that we, we really wanted to see before as, as part of this trip. And we tried to get into Saudi Arabia. There were some problems with our dog's paperwork and because Eid um, was just about to start which is a big public holiday for them and it lasts for two weeks um, but they weren't they weren't able to process the paperwork for the dog so we we really had to leave Jordan at this stage our visa for Jordan was running out so we had to turn around and the only option was to go back to Iraq but that didn't worry us at all we were so we we're actually really excited about going back and seeing the old the friends we'd made while we were in Iraq so yeah totally um totally flipped our opinion on what it would be like to travel through Iraq and really glad that we did that trip. And I think that's another challenge, as you, as you just alluded to, crossing a border as a human can be challenging, even from friendly countries. But then you're going from some unfriendly countries, and, and it must be a, a special extra wrinkle when you're trying to deal with passports and visas and three pets. Uh, it's not 
it's not so difficult. I don't know whether we're just, you know, we're just used to it by now, but um, uh, certainly for, for us, visas, the visa process is always fairly straightforward. Um, uh, a lot easier when you can get visas at the border. It does make for a longer border crossing. The bike can often be a big challenge because countries uh, don't want you bringing vehicles in and then selling them or leaving leaving them there. So for some countries in the world, the bike can be the biggest challenge um, and they cannot even care about dogs. It's more of the, the Western countries that are quite specific on the pet requirements when you, when you cross a border. But, you know, to be honest, in our experience, when you fly into a country at the airport, um, whatever the, the policy or process is for bringing a dog, it, varies, it tends to be quite strict. Um, when you cross the land border, I just think there just aren't that many people doing it. So often you get to the land border and you can be expecting to apply for a permit for the dogs and we have their pet passport the, with their rabies vaccine, their cheetah test, their microchip, all of their details, all of their vaccination records. We have it ready to go and no one asks. It, it tends to be countries like coming into to North America, so the US, Canada, getting into Europe, um, getting into the Southern African Union, where people um, people at the borders are really checking to make sure that your dogs are uh, meet the requirements to enter the country. Probably for vaccinations and that sort of thing, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Exactly. Uh, th did you tour then Southeast Asia? Did you go through parts of Asia? Yes. Uh, so once we once we made it across to Mongolia, uh, we made our way over to Vladivostok and we shipped our bike down to Bangkok. Um, without our bike, we had to then get down to Southeast Asia. So we took a ferry to South Korea and then we flew into Vietnam. Vietnam's not easy to get motorcycles into, so... We took the opportunity while our bikes were shipping to see a little bit of Vietnam with the dogs, uh, and that was a lot of fun. Um, we, we met our bikes in Bangkok, and then we toured around uh, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, and we went into a little bit of Myanmar. Wow. that's And, and were you ever, ever concerned when you were in these different places where you would get fuel, where, you, where you'd be able to stop and get gasoline? No, I don't. It's not. It's not something that that worries us because there are, there are cars and scooters and bikes everywhere in the world. This is how this is how people get around now, and and so they have to have access to fuel and they have to have yeah. food. Uh, so there's going to be fuel and there's going to be food for us as well. Yeah, populated places definitely no problem. Really, the places that we would worry about fuel is when we're out in the desert. Or, um, or in the middle of the jungle somewhere where we're a long way from from people and from a fuel station. But we did intentionally put long-range tanks onto our bikes before as, as part of our, our initial setup because we knew we would be in um, in places where it, we might be we might need to, um, to cover large distances without access to a fuel station. So luckily we can do about 550 miles with our bikes without needing to fill up. Which is pretty, pretty good. Yeah, pretty yeah. exceptional, really. 
Yeah, as you said, a lot better than the average motorcycle. My guests are Stuart and Janelle Clark. We're talking about their round-the-world trip over the last 10 years with their rescue dogs. Uh, you say that you've been through 108 countries, right? Now, I think according to the UN, there are 193 or maybe 195, somewhere in there. Uh, some people say there are more, like 230-something countries, uh, or maybe even more. Uh, you're basically halfway there through the list. Uh, is there any interest in going for every country? No, no, we never, this is, we were never trying to set a record or, um, yeah, or anything like that. We just, we just wanted to, to travel around the world, uh, see as much as we could and, um, and then make our way back home. <laughs> and, and, and when are you going to do that? When are you going to head back home? We're, we've got a few more months in the U.S. and, uh, and then we'll be looking to ship out either, actually either to New Zealand or to Australia. Most likely New Zealand first. And, but that, now that you are in the United States, you are touring a little bit of the United States. Have you been able to do any sightseeing, like see uh, that giant Paul Bunyan thing or, or maybe the largest ball of yarn? <laughs> uh, we, went to, we went to a borough race in, oh, cool. um, in Fairplay, and that was a lot of fun, yes. something we'd never seen before. We, t- we tend to see unusual things. Yeah, we, we, uh, we I think... Really, the only area so far that we've really done a lot of sightseeing or, or um, exploring was Colorado through the Rockies. We um, we didn't we did go through the Rockies uh, when we were back when we were in the US in 2015, but we it was it was cold, so we wanted to move down to California as quickly as we can. So this time we had a bit more time, and we, we did a few of the uh, famous passes and um, really took time to explore the villages. It was yeah, it was it was really nice um, to to see some of Colorado this time. And now we've been kind of rushing to get over to, um, to Chicago and uh, and we've got a, an event that we're doing a presentation at in um, Ohio. Nelsonville, Ohio, and, the Waylon Wayne weekend. Yeah, and after that we're going to, we'll have more time again to, um, to, to yeah, to see some of the sites. So we have, we're fitting it in. While we're here in Chicago, we'll get, get around and see some more. I think those borough races are actually our official state summer sport. Um, and so <laughs> it's quite the time. It was a photo finish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 15 miles. We couldn't believe that it came down to a photo finish. And it was a big donkey and a little one. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Good stuff. Uh, have these events been uh, that you stop at? Are, are you able to use those events? Are you able to use that to help you finance the trip as you've been going on? Because pres- pr- presumably you haven't been... Uh, working for the last 10 years. And I know you said you saved up, you know, early, but you, you didn't plan on being out on the road for 10 years. Yeah, we, um, it, we expect presentations are free presentations that we're giving. Um, we're, there's, there's no expectation at all, but we do put out a, uh, a tip jar and people have been very generous and it is definitely very helpful for us um, having the funds that are coming in from those. But, um, but uh, I mean, we, yeah, it's all um, it's all helpful money at the moment. We, we've probably got enough to get us by to finish the trip, but um, but it's it's going to be helpful money when we need to set up ourselves in Australia again. <laughs> I'll bet. Have your have your uh, backsides gotten tired from all this motorcycle riding, or you're pretty much used to it now? You have some calluses back there. <laughs> we're pretty we're pretty used to it. The only time it's a problem is when we've shipped our bikes and we've been off the bike for a couple of months, and we get back in the saddle and we think we can do 
you know, a 300 kilometer day. <laughs> and after about 150 kilometers, our bottoms and our arms are not quite, they've, they've lost their uh, endurance and it takes a couple of days to build it up again. Yeah. <laughs> I'll bet it does. So how, when you head back, what's going to be next? Um, a book, a movie? Um, what, what do you think is, uh, is in your future when you get home? We'd, we'd love to write, we'd, we'd love to write a few books about our travels. Um, really just to be able to show people another way of showing people what's possible, um, with dogs, traveling with dogs, uh, to inspire people. We're not expecting people to go around the world with their dogs like us, but, but it would be great to, to reach more people and show them, uh, you know, just, just moving across your own country. You don't have to give up your dog. Um, there's ways of, of dealing with that. And if you want to go traveling, you could, there are ways of including your dog in, in traveling or cat, whatever, whatever pet you've got. So a couple of books would be great. We are, we are following up with the lead in, um, we got in LA for doing a documentary, um, which we'd really like to, do to do the same thing just to show people that if uh, if we can travel with our dogs to 108 countries people can take their dogs on holidays they can um, move with their dogs and yeah and it's it's not as difficult as as people think we really want to we really want to show people that it, it it's not it's, it's really not that difficult it's achievable if it's something that's important to you yeah I'm sure that the dogs will react differently not being on the road than than just being sedentary at home, not going anywhere. I'm I'm sure maybe they're looking forward to just uh, hanging around and, and having a ball thrown to them in, in one spot for for a while. Yeah, I, our, our older two, Weedy and Shadow, we've had them for quite a few years. They're about eleven and twelve years old now, and uh, when when we when we we're staying with my cousin in Chicago and she's got a lovely house and lots of nice places for them to sit and curl up in a ball and have a snooze. I can see that they're really enjoying that. Getting out to the dog parks. We went to some lovely dog parks in Colorado. So I, I think it'll be I think for them it'll be an easy adjustment. I think they will still want to go out on the bike every now and then. Of course, they're, they're going to miss it, of, <laughs> of course. And, you know, it makes me think you really need the right partner. You really need to find not, the, not only just the right human partner for an adventure like this, but also the right animal partner, too, to be able to uh, all, all work together to make a trip like this successful. Yeah, and that's a great thing about dogs, though. I think they just, they just want to be with you, and they're, they're normally they're very trusting. If you, if you put them in a situation, they'll trust that it's safe. And, um yeah, they for us, it's, we all three of our dogs have just taken to it. We haven't really even put much training into them. In fact, really, with each of them, the way we we, we picked them up, we um we didn't have time to to do any training with them. We were moving and we put them into the dog carrier into into our pillion food, and off we went. And they um each of them just took to it. I, I, but I think uh, if you had a cat or um or another type of of pet. It's not going to be so easy. We did we did try with um, some kittens that we were thinking about adopting. We found them in Portugal. They were dumped kittens, um, and we were we were thinking about adopting them and taking them travelling with us. But they just would not take the motorbikes at all. No matter what we tried, um, they're just they're just a different animal. Um, yeah, we we, post, we we found them. It was during the first lockdown. We found these kittens, so we contacted a rescue centre. And they just asked if we could foster them until they were old enough to have their, va their vaccinations without 
we had them for about six weeks and of course over that time we got really attached to them William Shadow got really attached to them and we when at about four weeks we started sitting them on the motorbike and then starting the motorbike and trying to figure out how we could take them with us but they just there was just no way they were they were not like the dogs but there are there are people who travel with cats um, on bicycles and on motorbikes around the world so it is possible you just have to know your pet yeah, and my, I know my cat, Senorita Whiskers, she, well, sometimes we'd call her traffic cat. Uh, she uh, she would have none of it. So, yeah, you're right. You do have the, <laughs> have to have the right pet. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure visiting with you both, Stuart and Janelle Clark, talking about your 10-year around-the-world trip with your, uh, with your pets. And uh, I want to wish you the best of luck, safe travels for the rest of your uh, journey and uh, for your trip back home. Uh, I can't wait to, to see what you do next. And if there is a documentary, I'd love to see it. Thanks, Great. Jason. Thank, thanks so much. And um, if anyone does have any questions about traveling with pets, uh, please feel free to get in touch with us. And how do we do that? Uh, you can head to our website and our and our email addresses are on there or our links to social media. Our website is www.thepacktrack.com. T-R-A-C-K. Okay, that's what I thought initially. Okay, perfect. And I'll make sure that I have a link to that in the description of the show so everybody can click that link right there and then get a hold of you guys. So I, I appreciate your all your time, your insight, your stories. It was really fascinating to listen to. Right. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, time. Again, that website is thepacktrack.com, T-H-E-P-A-C-K-T-R-A-C-K, thepacktrack.com. I have a link in the description uh, so you can catch up with them. I was riveted, riveted by the story of them traveling through Iraq. That sounded terrifying and exhilarating and nerve-wracking and satisfying all at the same time. And, and to see a landscape like that, it, that, that few other people have seen, that had to be really special. Um, I mean, it's, it, it's probably a landscape that's similar to, our, to the uh, United States Southwest, Desert Southwest, but maybe it's not. I don't know. I've never been there. I've never seen it. Uh, but but I think always in the back of your head that you have to uh, think about the the terror that is around the corner. Don't, as they said, you can't go at night. The ISIS is there. And, and they, they probably knew uh, that the ISIS people were probably watching Stuart and Janelle riding their motorcycle with the dogs. And, and what would they have done? I, I don't know. I... I can't imagine. Um, that would have been terrifying. But again, exhilarating all at the same time. So, But I also find it fascinating to see how people uh, live and work in, in their respective cities around the world and, and how they get around. And I, I think it would be really fun for me, at least, to, to study uh, uh, you know, transportation uh, in different cities. Not, not trying to you know, find uh, better public transportation routes, but just how people get around naturally. That, that, to me, is, is interesting. Um, it, it, anyway, it's, it, that was a fascinating interview. I had a, <laughs> I had a good time with that. Anyway, thanks for uh, listening, and thanks for being here. And until next time, I'm Jason Luber, the Travic Guy. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring. Happy motoring.